Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. Good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayla, and thank you so much for joining me on this Discam Medical Monday. And uh, yeah, I'll be your host for the next hour. Discam Medical Monday, we talk to the best experts in the field, and we learn about the different uh, diseases, different ailments, how best to treat them, and uh, we get the advice. So it's really it's about empowering you with knowledge. Uh, that said, I do want to make. Um, the following point that none of our doctors, professors, experts on the, on uh, this Discam Medical Monday program can diagnose over SMS or WhatsApp or, uh, email or even calls. So, uh, you know, you're going to be directed to another expert or in fact to your general practitioner. Just got to put that out there. So, uh, Today, we're talking about a little gland in your body. Tiny little gland that looks like a butterfly, stings like a bee, because boy, oh boy, when things go wrong with your thyroid gland, things can really go wrong. And uh, joining me is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He is an endocrinologist. If you've got any questions about the thyroid, if uh, you suspect that you may have thyroid issues, then get in touch with us. How do you do it? Well, during this program, you can SMS on 34519. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send us a WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. What's great about uh, the WhatsApp line is you can send us voice notes, you can send us uh, videos, you can send us images as well as text. And uh, if you're on Wi-Fi, then it's absolutely free. So 062-148-2374. Or you can even email on air at chaifm.com. How do you spell chaifm? C-H-A-I-F-M dot com. That's it. So uh, welcome to Dr. Brad Mervitz, endocrinologist. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's, you know what? It's very nice to have you back. All right. Uh, we're talking about this tiny, actually it's not so tiny, but it's a small little gland, mm. you know, mm. looks so innocuous, um, but it really is responsible for so many different functions yeah. in our in our bodies. Where is the thyroid located? What does it look like? Give us a vital statistics. So the thyroid gland is located in your neck, basically just above the notch. You can feel as your neck joins to your thorax, there's a little notch there. Just above there, you can feel some hard, harder parts. Those are called cartilages, the cricoid and the thyroid cartilages. In a man, that's the Adam's apple. So straddling this lying just over it is the thyroid gland. Most people don't even know that it's there. Um, because under normal circumstances, uh, it's not enlarged, you can't feel it, you can't see it, and it just sits there and does its thing. It's a relatively smallish gland, about 20 grams or so. It varies somewhat um, amongst individuals, and it controls the rate at which the body functions. So uh, the basal metabolic rate is controlled largely by the thyroid gland and the thyroid hormones. So in excess, everything revs up, and in deficiency, everything slows down. And uh, those will then manifest in the various diseases and the entities. But you can get thyroid pathology where the actual function of the gland is not affected, but uh, the size the size can enlarge massively in some people. You see these very dramatic pictures of people with enormous thyroid glands, lumps in their necks, uh, what's known as a goiter, 
And, um, you know, those have various reasons or various underlying mechanisms that would cause them to develop. And so these things all get managed in very different ways, some by endocrinologists, some by surgeons, some by nuclear medicine uh, specialists, depending on whether there's a cancer or not. So um, a lot can go wrong with the thyroid gland, but under normal circumstances, it functions normally and it just keeps you ticking along nicely. It's amazing, huh? Mm. Just, uh, you can just ignore it. That's it. I think that the body is just completely the most spectacular piece of machinery ever created. Like it just, it really is. When you look at all the different systems that have to work within systems within, which work within systems. And if, you know, and then you get this knock on effect, mm. um, when something goes wrong, but you only find out once the body has tried all the other adjustments itself, which is just amazing. There, there are amazing homeostatic mechanisms that exist in the body. It really is a wonder. And um, you can see in young people with a good physiological reserve, it often takes a lot for those mechanisms to break down. Whereas in old individuals, there's decreased physiological reserve. And so one small knock in one organ system can have a knock-on effect in multiple other organ systems. And um, Such a good point. That's why we get more ill as we get yeah, older. Because it takes less and less. It. And I always say you can often see... Older patients that, um, off the topic, but older patients that sometimes land up in hospital, say, with a urinary tract infection, all of a sudden they're completely delirious because they have less reserves. So that small infection can put an at-risk brain, can knock it over the edge, and then they can present with a delirium or a pneumonia, can cause kidney failure. All these things we see in older patients because they don't have that reserve to allow for the normal homeostatic mechanisms to, to function. And so with the endocrine system, because there's such a close interplay between organ systems, the various organ systems, it can often be, particularly when you're talking about pituitary disease, that you can see that multiple organ systems can be affected. Okay, so why, okay, so how is the pituitary related to the, the thyroid? The pituitary um, takes instructions, as it were, from the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is an area of the brain that's involved with maintaining an internal environment, blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, and it does this by secreting a number of hormones as well as giving certain neurological outputs. Uh, one of the hormones is something called TRH, thyrotropin-releasing hormone. And that travels down the pituitary stalk. That's the connection between the pituitary and the hypothalamus. And it stimulates the pituitary to make TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. And the TSH... I think this was matric biology, that's actually. It. That's <laughs> it. It was. <laughs> I remember the TH, TSH and the R. Yeah. Yeah, it equipped you for something in the world. Well, that's all I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so the TSH then goes to the thyroid and stimulates the thyroid to make two main hormones. The predominant one is what we call FT4, free T4 or thyroxine. And thyroxine is a precursor hormone. It gets converted in the peripheral tissues uh, via certain enzymatic changes by enzymes called diiodinases to something called T3. T3 is active thyroid hormone. About 90% of the body's requirements of thyroid, of active thyroid hormone T3 come from the peripheral conversion, and only about 10% comes from the thyroid gland itself. So the thyroid makes predominantly T4 and a little bit of T3, and the rest of the T3 comes at a tissue level. Now, you have receptors for thyroid hormone in all the tissues of the body, and you have these di- diiodinases in multiple tissues as well. And in the, in the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus, there are receptors and there are enzymes over there, and there's a feedback that occurs, what we call a negative feedback loop. So as T4 and T3 levels reach their natural, their physiological range, that stops the pituitary and the hypothalamus from producing their hormones, TRH and TSH. Because you don't want too much. Exactly. And so it's a self-regulating mechanism. And in disease, these processes break down. 
Even though the body tries to compensate for it, the processes break down to some degree. And we use those when we measure thyroid function tests to, to show us is this an overactive thyroid or an underactive thyroid. And so we can glean a lot of information about where the disease, the primary disease is by looking at the thyroid function tests. Is it in the thyroid? Is it in the, in the pituitary, the hypothalamus or somewhere else? So interesting. So interesting. Mm. Um, are more and more people suffering with thyroid issues? Well, we know thyroid disease is, is extremely common. It's probably the most second common endocrine disorder after diabetes. Um, so it's a really common thing. I, I can't say this. Why is it so common? You know, it could be that there's an environmental role at play. It could be that we're diagnosing it more as well. You know, we know that certain environmental things can bring out thyroid disease. So patients that were ex- exposed to nuclear fallout from Chernobyl, for example. I have a few patients that were living in Eastern Europe at the time. They were exposed to the fallout. Wow. So they're at risk of thyroid disease. Um, some of our dietary supplements. So we know that kale, for example, is... Uh, a goitrogen, so that can cause potential thyroid things in large quantities. See, I knew kale was bad for us. I knew in it. large I quantities. I knew that we should not be eating kale. So, um, iodine deficiency or iodine excess can also cause thyroid disease. Um, more than that, you know, we're not sure uh, to what extent thyroid um, thyroid disease will occur as a result of certain environmental toxins, but we do know these ones for certain that that can affect the thyroid. What about um, the hormones that they put into our food, whether it's chicken, beef, milk? So if if there's thyroid hormone, then certainly it can Any affect... Any hormones? Well, won't the body still react to that? It's unlikely that that will affect the thyroid per se. It can certain, certainly affect other organ systems and have other effects, but not necessarily with the thyroid itself. Um, you know, there's stories of unscrupulous butchers putting thyroid, thyroid tissue into their hamburger patties. Um, you get these case reports every now and then where there are outbreaks of people that come in with, an, with thyroid toxicosis. And when you go back and look at it, I remember seeing something like mm. that on medical detectives. Actually, yeah, so they couldn't work it out. Yeah, and uh, the butcher had been butchering and not removing the thyroids of the animals. They're called hamburger thyroiditis. I mean, it's not a common thing, but it occurs. So wherever there's excess thyroid hormone in the diet, that can certainly do it. Um, and again, iodine is the major major role player in in um, some environmental thyroid disease because iodine is required to synthesize thyroid hormone. It's one of the constituents of thyroid hormone. So if you have an excess or deficiency, it will affect the thyroid in a particular way. How would one get an excess of iodine hormone? I mean, iodine. Of iodine. Um, so it can be environmental contamination. It can be exposure through radioiodine contrast. So certain um, radiological procedures that we do, if you're having recurrent ones, those may have a high iodine load. Sometimes Don't they add it to our salt? You get iodized salt. We get iodized not the same thing. It is, but the the reason they iodize our salt is to prevent deficiency. So if you look worldwide, the worldwide leading cause of an underactive thyroid is iodine deficiency. Iodated salt has gone a long way to reducing that. And so in South Africa, we, strictly speaking, are still an iodine deficient country. But anecdotally, I can tell you the majority of underactive thyroids we see are from autoimmune disease rather than from iodine deficiency. So the iodated salt actually has helped. But people can take in large quantities of iodine through supplements, through, um, you know, natural products. All these kinds of things may contain iodine. And so you can get an excess. So interesting. If you've got questions um, for my guest, Dr. Brad Merwitz. Mervitz, he is an endocrinologist. We're talking about the thyroid. We're basically talking about the glands in your body uh, and how they relate to the thyroid. Perhaps you've got a thyroid problem and you suspect that you might be having issues. Perhaps your medication needs to be monitored or you've got a question about somebody else. You know, we're going to be talking about some symptoms, but I do also have to caution you that every single 
Diskim Medical Monday show that I've been doing over the last 10 years, whether it is from, uh, you know, childbirth to Alzheimer's. By the end of the show, I'm convinced I've got it. <laughs> so I don't want you to panic when you hear any of the any of the symptoms, but you do need to be aware of these things because you might be saving your life. You might be saving somebody else's life. So uh, that's coming up. If you want to get in touch with us, this is how you do it. You can send us an SMS, a text, three four five one nine. That's the text line. Three four five one nine. Those texts are charged at one rand fifty. You can also send us a WhatsApp message, and the number for that is zero six two one four eight. Two three seven four. You can send us voice notes. You can send us pictures. You can send us text questions. Uh, but get in touch with your questions and your comments. You know, perhaps uh, you've had a, th- a thyroid issue and you want to share that story with us. Then uh, we would really like to hear from you. So go on, get in touch. We're talking about the thyroid, which is uh, the little gland in your neck, and how it has an impact on glands and glandular systems, your endocrine system, right throughout your whole body. So uh, get in touch. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla. This is the Discam Medical Monday and I'm your host until the, until 11 o'clock this morning. So thank you very much. My guest is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He is an endocrinologist. We're talking about a little gland in your body that, uh, you know, it, it's quite innocuous. Nobody thinks about it. Most people ignore it until things go wrong with it. Uh, something so interesting that uh, Dr. Merwitz was actually saying is that, you know, when when we're young, we have so much room to kind of abuse our bodies. And we do often. Um, but as we get older, so that gap closes and closes and closes. And... Uh, you know, when something goes wrong with the thyroid, often it's a number of different systems that can also go down. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about underactive thyroid. Uh, Dr. Mervitz, what are the what are the symptoms of underactive thyroid? They're pretty nonspecific, the symptoms. Things we all suffer with every day, which can often make it See, I told you, we're all difficult. going to go <laughs> be convinced that we all have thyroid, underactive yeah. thyroid. I get a few a week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so the common, the commonest complaint is weight gain. You know, it can be, um, unusual weight gain. So despite no increase in caloric intake, or often there's actually decreased appetite, decrease intake, there's, can be quite marked weight gain. Fatigue is extremely. So even though you might be eating less? Yeah. You could be putting on weight. Mm. Wow. Or you haven't changed too much your regular routine. So you're still exercising or not exercising, as the case may be. Um, Eating the same amount, but weight is, you're putting on weight. So weight gain is a common one. Fatigue, um, extreme fatigue is another one. Uh, Often people might tell you they struggle to get out of bed in the morning or just as the day goes on, they they can't cope. Um, Another common complaint is what we refer to as a cognitive fog, where you feel like there's a haze over your head the whole time. You can't think clearly. You can't process things. Uh, as sharply as, as one used to um, And that's because of the effect of thyroid hormone in the brain One may experience hair loss, uh, constipation Women may start experiencing menstrual irregularities Often heavier uh, menses every month than, than previous um, Slowing of the heart rate What we call cold intolerance So people say they feel the cold far more than they used to You know, Even in the hottest summer day they're putting on jerseys um, those are those are the commonest uh, commonest complaints. They may also get a change in complexion, dryness of the skin, 
Um, so they're pretty non-specific. I mean, if you think about, take winter, for example, where perhaps people are eating a bit more and exercising a little bit less and they're cold and they're not getting out much and the skin is dry because the, you know, the, the air on us is dry. So you can see a normal winter's day may be mistaken for a thyroid problem. Um, and so that's why if there is a concern, it's pretty easy to diagnose. You go in and you do a simple blood test and the blood test will tell us, do you have an underactive thyroid, an overactive thyroid, normal thyroid function? And if there's still a concern, we can actually do some antibody testing to see if you're at risk or predisposed to it and then direct therapy that way. So interesting. Mm. Okay, so uh, underactive, you're going to have weight gain, mm. even though your your eating habits haven't changed, yeah. and your your normal routines haven't changed. Mm. So if you exercise, you're continuing to exercise. If you aren't, then you aren't. Um, but you'll have this weight gain, mm. irrespective of what you're doing. Most people, there's a small minority of patients that may present in either condition with the opposite, some of the opposite symptoms. Um, but the vast majority of people with underactive thyroid will have some of these symptoms that I've described now. Okay. Um, you said extreme fatigue. Yeah. Um, cognitive fog, mm. where you kind of can't quite connect the dots. Yeah, it just you, you, you know you just feel your mental faculties not as sharp as they used to be. Maybe it's a little bit slower to think about things, or a bit of forgetfulness, um, struggling to you know put names into things. Yeah. Mm. Hair loss. Can be. Can what's, be in either what's one. What's normal hair loss? We all have a normal hair loss. I mean, you'll know if, if you brush your hair, you'll know a certain amount of hair will come out of that when you're in the shower because our hair is constantly renewing. And so you have some that fall out and new ones that grow. But when it's excessive, when it represents a change from what you previously had, mm. I think that's always one of the, the best markers is, is this a change from what things were previously? And has it been a more sudden onset or more gradual an onset? Obviously, something that starts suddenly, it's easier to say, okay, well, there's probably some kind of pathology here. Sometimes things develop over time. It can still be underlying disease or can just be aging. You know, people don't like to acknowledge that as we age and it's normal to age, things change. And so often people come in trying to fight that, trying to fight aging, and there's very little I can do about that. You know, yeah. but, but if it represents a change from what it previously was, that's probably the best marker that maybe we should look into something, see if there's something going on. Yeah. Mm. You also said constipation. Yeah, big complaint because, again, your gut function is affected by the thyroid hormones. If you've got an underactive thyroid, then the gut motility may be decreased. And so constipation is quite common. Okay. You said a woman having irregular periods? Yeah, usually heavier. Um, and they may actually be closer, counterintuitively, they may be closer together and heavier, uh, menorrhagia rather than, uh, amenorrhea or no menstrual periods. Okay. And you said cold intolerance. Mm. Okay. So that's underactive. Mm. What happens if you have underactive? Say you can live with all of these things. You can live with the fatigue and the hair loss and the constipation mm. or whatever. Is there a knock-on effect? You know, you know, there's that 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 saying: a stitch in time saves nine. Yeah. What you look after when it's small won't get bigger, but if you don't look after the small things, yeah. then it does. It it uh, magnifies. So the problem with having um, an untreated, underactive thyroid is that there are other effects as well that can cause hypertension or high blood pressure, right? And obviously, that's linked to cardiovascular mortality um, and morbidity. You know, heart disease, stroke, renal failure, etc. Uh, also, underactive thyroid can create an unfavorable lipid profile. So your cholesterol levels may go haywire. High cholesterol, high bad cholesterol, low good cholesterol, um, which again has significant, can, is related to significant cardiovascular mortality. So those are other things that need to be um, addressed. Also, your general quality of life just goes down. Yeah. And in severe hypothyroidism, there's a very, it's uncommon, but there's something called myxedema coma, which can be an acute life-threatening situation where patients present in a coma or with a 
really depressed level of function, a level of neurological function, and they often need to be admitted to ICUs and have intravenous thyroid hormone. Can they um, recover? Yes, they can recover with therapy. Um, but, you know, it, that is acutely life-threatening. It's not common. So I've all three of these things are life-threatening. Can be, yeah. You know, when you've got your hypertension, which is your blood pressure, mm. and that can cause stroke. Uh, you've got your unfavorable lipid profile, which in addition to the weight gain, which you're yeah. already go, you're already experiencing that. That, yeah. that can also, I mean, yeah. that, you know, that's a, that's a high risk heart and attack. You see, the problem is the symptoms because they, they nonspecific. Many people can live with them for a while. They just think, oh, I'm a bit run down. I'm working hard. The kids are driving oh, me mad. I live is. in South Africa. That's right. it. And, you know, in fact, recent, just in memory now, I've got a patient who had, um, virtually undetectable levels in her blood and she was carrying on and functioning the problem is things like blood pressure and cholesterol you only really detect them either when you're getting screened or it's too late and something's already happened so you want to try and avoid those but by the same token we, we don't want to create neurosis over here we don't want to think there's a thyroid oh, no, problem come on the Jewish community we all neurotic but but certainly <laughs> it needs to be addressed yeah. an underactive thyroid is not something you just wait and say oh, it's fine I'll address it at a later stage if it's been diagnosed it should be treated okay um, all right, so you those are the three main uh severe mm. uh you know outcomes i suppose mm. of uh of untreated low uh what did we say hypo underactive yeah okay, so that's hypo yes, and then we have hyper mm. which is overactive that's it okay, so here so what are the symptoms everything speeds up so so we talk fast, yeah, increased <laughs> appetite with weight loss. Heat intolerance. You know, that <laughs> could be a diet. So the thing is, you know, often people, once they know what thyroid hormone does, they surreptitiously, surreptitiously take them. We see it not uncommonly with nursing staff. Where really? They know what and yeah. I just thought that I was being facetious. No. Really? Yeah. So you have increased appetite, but you've got weight loss. Yes. You may have increased appetite. Your appetite may be normal, but there's weight loss um, with minimal excess. So often, as we start correcting that, patient's... They say, get a little bit more upset with me because now they start gaining weight even though their activity is not changed. And that's because now your body's returning to what would be normal for it. You can't abuse your body or have this pathological way to lose weight. I think when you correct it, you're going to keep that off. Your body will reset to what's normal for it. But so weight loss, um, increased appetite, uh, loose, loose bowels, I guess you could call it. Uh, again, menstrual abnormalities, but here you usually see a prolonging in the cycle um, and potentially amenorrhea, so you may actually lose or skip periods. So have less. Mm. Mm. Also agitation, uh, anxiety. Patients often complain of severe anxiety, maybe even with panic attacks. Get a resting tremor. Again, hair may fall out. What's a resting tremor? Is that so it got shakes? It shakes, yeah. It's usually a fine tremor. It's not like a Parkinson's tremor where you have... Uh, difficulty in, you know, doing fine motor, um, fine motor activities, but it's there and it's noticeable. Again, they may get high blood pressure. You, your heart rate speeds up tachycardia, so you can develop arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation being the commonest one, um, which is, can be quite dangerous. Hyperthyroidism can also affect bone health, so it predisposes patients to osteoporosis because you increase bone turnover. Um, and there are, there are, um, other effects. In you know various organ systems, muscle weakness. You can develop myopathy. They may get a decrease in muscle bulk as well. Um, so it's got very far-ranging effects. I've left out many. You know, in, in Graves' disease, it's a terrible-sounding name, but it's named after a person, uh, Robert Graves, who was a, a physician who described it. Actually, surgeon who described it. And they can get um, eye disease, severe eye disease, what we call orbitopathy or Graves' ophthalmopathy. So where people's eyes seem to be popping out. That's it. So. 
all thyroid, all overactive thyroid disease can cause the eyelids at the top to retract, to go back a little bit. But only the autoimmune cause will cause the, eye, the autoimmune etiology will actually cause the eyes to pop out, give proptosis. And if it's severe, that can cause um, significant eye disease and, you know, can be sight threatening under, when there's very severe disease diagnosed. N- not everyone develops that though. Um, there can also be what's called dermopathy in Graves' disease where you develop these plaques on the, on the front of the shins. Um, which uh, is about 5% of patients, but they, you know, it, it is something there. And the problem is often these things are biopsied. And when you biopsy these and you start rubbing funny creams onto them, you can actually do more harm than good. People don't think about thyroid as a cause of that kind of skin lesion. Gosh. Yeah. So there are a number of, of uh, ways that the disease can present, but it's usually far more dramatic. And so it's diagnosed often earlier rather than hypo because hypo is so nonspecific. Sure. Mm-hmm. Overactive thyroids. Mm. And then in elderly patients, patients over over 65 years of age, there's a condition, an entity known as apathetic hyperthyroidism, where they may not present with all those features. And there's just, again, a sense of being ill at ease, not, not feeling themselves, but they don't have the dramatic presentation like this. And that actually carries with it increased mortality, um, but that's because the condition is not diagnosed. And so they may get the cardiovascular problems, the, uh, the arrhythmias and the high blood pressure. Good question from Nikki hmm. for you, Dr. Mervitz. Uh, if I have to go to a new doctor, they always do a thyroid test. I tell them I have no problem and I don't. What are they seeing that makes them think I do? My eyes are normal. Good question, Nikki. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks, Nikki. So, you know, it will depend a lot on the symptoms. I think we need to put out there now, there's no benefit to screening the general population for thyroid disease. The times we do screen are when women are pregnant Okay, and uh, all babies, n- newborns, should have their thyroid function tested. The general population should not be screened at a, at a population level because the costs outweigh the benefits over there. The costs of the blood tests outweigh the number of cases that you'll detect. Is it very expensive? Um, they're not that expensive. I mean, all blood tests, you know, can, can be – they're not as high as some of the other endocrine tests that we do. They're higher than some of the regular renal function tests or what have you. Give us a ballpark. I can't. I can't oh. give you offhand. I can't give you that. Okay. I know the antibodies, but not the actual the TSH okay. and T43. But sometimes people will come in with nonspecific complaints – and so the doctors will go for thyroid because it is very common and it is easily treatable. But I think if you're just going to a healthcare provider for the first time for, you know, whatever it is, coughs and colds and those kinds of things, or even blood pressure, there's no real indication to do a thyroid function test. So they must be seeing something in the history that's saying, well, maybe this is a thyroid problem. Because clinically there may not be... Um, any kind of manifesting symptoms of it. If there's an unexplained tachycardia or bradycardia, so if the heart rate is unexplained, uh, it's high or it's low, we've got another reason, then certainly you would screen thyroid function tested at, at that time. Or if it's a young person with blood pressure, you might consider that. But to do it just, you know, off the bat, you're a new patient, to do thyroid function tests, it's not really indicated. Okay. Gail, thank you so much for getting in touch. And uh, Gail wants to know, is the parathyroid a totally separate discussion? Thanks so much. Great question. Yeah. So similar in name, completely different in function. That really is. So parathyroid glands, they're four small glands that sit adjacent to the thyroid, hence the name parathyroid. And they're involved in calcium metabolism and bone health. So it's a completely separate thing. They're, they're unrelated and are not really impacted by each other. They may be synergistic in terms of 
bone disease if there's abnormalities in both organ systems, but they're not linked otherwise. Okay, so they don't they don't have the same no. they don't have the same function as the thyroid. All right, so we're talking about the thyroid gland. Uh, my guest is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He's an endocrinologist, and you know it's this tiny little gland, not so tiny. How big would you say? Yeah, about six seven centimeters long. Ten. Um, no, but not as much as ten. Not as much as ten. Maybe about six to seven yards, six centimeters or so. Yeah, mm. and uh, you know, when things go wrong with it, they can go very, very wrong. Mm. So because it is quite common, um, as my very, very uh, well-educated expert guest has has said, you know, having thyroid issues is a lot more common than we think. Mm. Um, so we've spoken about underactive thyroids. We've spoken about overactive thyroids. I didn't even know until recently that you could get thyroid cancer. Mm. I mean, I don't know why. I just had never thought about it. Uh, thyroid cancer, how does it manifest? So thyroid cancer is one of those cancers we're picking up more and more now um, and at earlier and earlier stages. Well, that's good because then you can treat it, right? Well, it's actually at a, at a point now where we think we may be over-treating them. And part of the reason we've seen, what, what makes us tell us is we've seen in the last, call it 20 years or so, an exponential growth in the number of cases diagnosed and very little change to actual mortality. Um, and we know that some of the cancers, some of the thyroid cancers are not that aggressive. You get some subvariants that may be very aggressive and some that are less so. And so with those that are less so, we're not seeing an increase in mortality with the concurrent increase in numbers. So we're probably diagnosing them earlier and we're treating them more aggressively, maybe more aggressively than we need to. And so in the world now, in the, the thyroid cancer world, there's a lot of research going on to say at what point do we need to treat these and how aggressively. So there are a number of variants of thyroid cancer. What are the, what are the symptoms? There may be no symptoms at all. There might be a nodule. Oftentimes, these things are picked up incidentally. You're having a sonar for whatever reason or doctor feels a bit of a nodule over there and they do a sonar and they, they see a nodule on the ultrasound of the neck. Because it's very unusual for thyroid cancer to present with the symptoms of an over or underactive thyroid. Most of the cancers are, your patients are still what we call euthyroid, normal thyroid function with an incidental nodule. And so unless it's very late and it's very advanced and it's spread significantly, you may not know that it's there unless you feel the nodule or or you've had a sonar for some other reason. And... um, we use ultrasounds. Uh, we obviously have to pair it with the thyroid function tests, and there's certain algorithms that exist for guiding healthcare providers down a diagnostic pathway because you don't want to be putting needles into every nodule. There. Not every nodule needs a, uh, a needle to, to diagnose it, and not every thyroid disease needs a, a sonar. But many of these cancers are picked up incidentally. There's a nodule that's seen on the sonar. It looks suspicious, and depending on the characteristics, the sonographic characteristics, are there calcifications? What is the absolute size? The width versus the height? Um, is there infiltration into surrounding tissues? There, there are a number of suspicious-looking patterns on sonar. And then we do a simple needle aspirate, a fine needle biopsy, and the cytologist will look at that. And then there are various subcategories, and they can guide us. This looks suspicious. This doesn't look suspicious. And that will say uh, to us as the healthcare providers, we need to treat or we need to follow up. And so... Um, obviously, if there's a palpable nodule, you can go get it sonar and checked out, combined to the thyroid function test. Maybe you need a radioiodine uptake scan. Um, and, and then the diagnosis is quite simple, usually. And, you know, then it just depends on the variant of thyroid cancer. There, there are a number of variants. Um, the commonest is what we call papillary. Did you say four? Did you say four? A- about four. I mean, there are, there are more, but the four commonest ones, let's say. 
So there are carcinomas and then there are other ones. The carcinomas are three main ones, what we call uh, papillary, follicular, and anaplastic, with multiple subvariants. The commonest is the papillary, and this also carries the best prognosis. Um, and, you know, this is... If, God forbid, a person has to choose a cancer, this is one of the ones to choose because it is easily treatable and it carries a good prognosis. The next one down is a follicular carcinoma, which still carries quite a good prognosis, but it's slightly more aggressive in terms of its spread. And these ones, when there's a large tumor load, may present with excess uh, the symptoms of hyperthyroidism, though not inevitably so. And then the most aggressive variant, and one that really carries a very poor prognosis, is anaplastic. The anaplastic carcinoma is the least common of the three of them, but it's the most aggressive. It's got a very undifferentiated picture when you look at the, the cells under microscope that don't actually necessarily look like thyroid cells, and that grows very rapidly, um, and so it portends quite a poor prognosis. Uh, the fourth one is what we call medullary thyroid carcinoma. It comes from what's called the parafollicular C cells, and it's also more aggressive. It's between anaplastic and follicular in terms of how aggressive it is, um, and so that needs a different therapeutic regimen, and that may be part of a different syndrome, uh, multiple endocrine neoplasias, where you've got uh, multiple, as the name implies, you've got multiple endocrine problems, and this is one of the constituents of that. So the easiest way to diagnose these things, you do a final aspirate, and you'll get the answer. What usually. is a final aspirate? You take a, a syringe with a needle, and it's not a thick needle, it's a regular thin needle, and you put a needle into the nodule, and you aspirate the cells. You suck out some of the cells. You put them onto a slide, and you send it to the cytologist, and the cytologist can repair it and look at it. And give us a, an answer. How long does it take that? I uh, mean, is it instant, as, as you say? You can get an answer within a day, okay. depending on the laboratory you use. So, you know, there's someone that, that I've used before, and she's able to give us a, at least a preliminary answer within the day. Um, unfortunately, if you're in the state sector, then you're looking at a two to three week delay at least. Okay, so Gail says, uh, please can we repeat our WhatsApp contact number? I will certainly do that. It's 062148. Two three seven four. That's zero six two one four eight two three seven four. If you want to get in touch with us from anywhere outside of South Africa, then the number is pretty much the same. You just drop the zero and you add plus two seven. So uh, in blonde, it's plus two seven six two one four eight two three seven four. Otherwise, uh, you can email from anywhere in the world. And that's on air at highfm.com. Right. Thanks, Gail. Gail says, uh, please can you discuss the effect of x-rays, either dental or other, on the thyroid? I think that that's a great question because a lot of x-rays and scans and technologies being, you know, we know that there have always been uh, risks. Mm. And sometimes you have to weigh up the risk of, diag- you know, not being diagnosed versus the risk of being exposed exposed to this radiation. So we know that ionizing radiation can affect the thyroid. And again, that's what we've seen from Chernobyl and places like that. Uh, there were two problems with Chernobyl. One is that the fallout affects the, contaminates the food supply, and so the iodine may become radioactive, and then that can concentrate in the thyroid. But again, just the ionizing radiation itself can affect the thyroid. And so often if you see doctors that spend a lot of time in Andrew's suites, uh, be it radiologists or cardiologists or whoever is there, they often wear thyroid protectors. So there is a critical... I've Im- never seen that. What is the thyroid protector? It's basically, it's a small... Um, so 
the, you've got big gowns that you wear to protect yourself, and those are lead lined. You've, there's smaller ones that just go around your neck, fit over your neck, and protect your shield oh, your thyroid. Yes, 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 I've seen that. Okay. So there is a critical amount of uh, radiation that can affect the thyroid. Unfortunately, I can't tell you offhand how many grays that is, but certainly if there's excess exposure to radiation, then that can have an, an impact on the thyroid. Um, you know, it can cause overactive, underactive, or predisposed to cancer. So certainly if someone is spending a lot of time around radiation, they need to protect their thyroid and cover it up. The odd chest x-ray here or there, a CT scan now and then, that's not going to have a major impact. But again, you know, CT scans may expose a patient to a lot of radiation. So if they're having multiple or recurrent CT scans, then it may be worthwhile, you know, shielding that. But I can't really think of, and again, this is anecdotal, but I can't think of a patient that's had a thyroid problem because of having CT scans, you know, that's coming to my practice at least, or multiple x-rays. But in large... dental x-rays? I mean, if you think about the dental x-rays, it's... It's focused right on your mouth and so, from where you're lying, yeah. it would be, it would include your thyroid. Well, not necessarily. If you look at the films, the films are usually of your jaw. Mm. And so often these beams are quite focused. There may be a slight amount of scatter that can affect it, but people are not having dental x-rays to the extent that they're going to be exposed to such a critical mass, I wouldn't think, or such a, you know, such a load of ionizing radiation that they have to worry. If a person's concerned, you know, it's something to bring up and consider. I don't think most dental practices will have thyroid shields in, in the rooms. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, putting your hand there is not going to help much. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Call your dentist. He can it. put his hand there. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be too concerned about that, in truth. Uh, as we said, we know that large exposure can certainly cause a problem. We've seen with Hiroshima as well, patients, you know, in Japan after the bombs were dropped there that had an increased increase incidence of thyroid disease. But from dental x-rays, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too concerned unless you're really having lots and lots of x-rays. You know, I remember being in medical school and, I'm being told that one CT scan of the lungs uh, is equivalent to about 500 x-rays in terms of radiation. Now, if there's a radiologist listen, listening, they can correct me on that. But, you know, that exposure, one CT scan, is not going to cause thyroid disease. And so 500 dental x-rays will probably not do that. And you're not going to be having 500 dental x-rays. So while there is a risk, I wouldn't be too concerned. haven't met my dentist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> so I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Becky, you are an absolute gem. Becky says, uh, she says, hi, I'm so enjoying the interesting and scary program this morning on thyroid. I phoned the Lancet Lambs. Do you remember I said how much is the thyroid test? Yes. She went, Becky went, and she phoned. Thank you, Becky. I'm just sending you uh, hugs. She said, I phoned the Lancet Labs in Auckland Park. Their thyroid prof- profile, TSH, is 337 rand. Mm. And the T4 is 299, which brings a total of 636 rand. For those, for that, yeah, and you might profile. do, a t- and you might do a T3 as well, and the T3 is more expensive than the T4, so you're probably looking about eight or nine hundred rand in total uh, for just those three tests. Okay, so you but can, you can pick up a lot with those. Three you tests. can, but you can see how doing a population-based screening program is going to just be too extreme in terms of its cost. Are these sort of tests offered by our public health system? Yes, do you know, yeah, absolutely, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's important because I think that there were certain areas in South Africa, I think some of the rural areas, in fact, where people are getting goiters and... Mm. I mean, you know, the the, um, NHLS, which is the National Health Laboratory Services, they're the main uh, laboratory service in the state sector. They are countrywide and they run these tests. These are standard tests. And the assays are standard assays. They're very good machines. So certainly there's access to them. And, you know, again, all pregnant women, all newborns, they should be screened. Certainly. So, so newborn, you would just do it as like a standard yeah. test. And uh, how much blood do they need to take? 
from a newborn? Yeah. Teeny amount. They use these special pediatric assays. For, for, for an adult, um, generally the tubes full, you know, they take about three to five moles. You don't need a full tube for it. So you could yeah. probably get away with one or two moles yeah. for, of blood, but yeah. Vicky, thank you for helping us with that information. I really appreciate it. All right. Quite a few times, um, Dr. Mervitz, you've referred to thyroid disease. Hmm. Is that different to having an underactive or an overactive thyroid? So, you know, there's, that's, that can be confusion. Another confusion is in terms when we talk about hyperthyroidism versus thyrotoxicosis. Um, you know, thyrotoxicosis means that there's excess thyroid hormone in the body. Not it's overactive. E- overactive. But again, it doesn't have to come from the thyroid. So you can have exogenous. So the hamburgers again, you're taking in thyroid hormone that way, or you're taking tablets, or okay, you're taking the hamburger conversation. Um, there was a, there was an entire town that they had problems with, you know, they all had these, these symptoms. Uh, thank God it wasn't fatal for everybody, mm. but you know, they brought in the, it was in the United States. It was, and it was one of these uh, towns in like the Midwest mm. and they brought in, uh, you know, all the investigators and their forensic guys and they just couldn't figure out what it was and they eventually found that it was the burgers and how they found is that uh, only one person in one of the families everybody else got infected or affected by it but in one of the families only one person was affected and who was that person? That person ate meat Mm -hmm. Ah, that's the only distinguishing factor so they go and check what it is and what was happening was that at the abattoir which had previously been I think a kosher abattoir. Do you know the Jewish connection to the story? No. It was originally a kosher abattoir. Now, in the way that um, Jews shecht, the way that uh, we slaughter, is that the animal is bled, and it's bled very, very quickly, which left the thyroid gland white and very identifiable. Mm. So the butchers or the people working at the abattoir were very, you know, they could easily identify the thyroid gland and they could take it out, right? But when the butcher, when the abattoir converted to a non-kosher uh, mm. abattoir, all of a sudden they were using it because they couldn't identify the thyroid as part of the animal to be mm. removed. And so they just started processing it. So now you've got all these people eating this burger meat, but it's got another animal's thyroid mm. hormone in it mm. and that's what was making people mm. so sick and it's, it's a textbook case but it's yeah. absolutely fascinating yeah I think you're being a bit generous many times the butchers are just unscrupulous and trying to maximize their profits but they can't do that I mean you aren't allowed to do that by law today because of the, the potential for people to get really sick so one would hope that they'd stick to those laws but you, do they not uh, I don't know You'd have to speak to the butchers. <laughs> I'm sure that our butchers certainly do. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, and so there are also a number of weight loss products that are marketed as being natural or herbal that contain thyroid hormone in them. That's really? what happens. Yes. There's, without mentioning names, there's one that's uh, very prominent in the community at the moment, and now a few cases where patients have come in with thyroid toxicosis because of it. Yes. Um, and, you know, the manufacturer denies, but it's quite clear on the, on the testing that there's thyroid hormone in there. So these are always, and because they're not regulated. Gosh, that's, that's really scary. Because they're not regulated, so you can put in what you want. So there are a number of ways to get in excess thyroid hormone. Again, a big iodine load may initially um, stun the thyroid, make it underactive, but then it can, you can escape that and you can get an excess, uh, like thyroid toxic picture from excess iodine, can do it as well. So there are a number of disorders that can cause a thyroid toxic picture. Some cancers may very, very rarely secrete thyroid hormone, paraneoplastic syndrome. So this is where a patient has thyrotoxicosis, but the primary problem is not in the thyroid. 
Okay, so, so that's pituitary. Could well, be hypothalamus. That would still be you working ultimately through the thyroid. Oh, though. okay. This is where the thyroid is not involved, and so that's so when the thyroid is involved, it's hyperthyroidism. Other causes of thyrotoxicosis. Thyroid disease just implies that there's a pathology in the thyroid itself. So that would be, you know, hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism. Those are disease processes that may arise in the thyroid, in which case it's thyroid disease. If it's from another reason, then it would, it wouldn't be a thyroid issue, if you know what I mean. Mm. What happens if an, a healthy, okay, firstly, let's talk about how are the different conditions treated. Okay. So, so underactive. How do you treat underactive? So if there's one endocrine disorder you want to get, it's an underactive thyroid because the management is easy. That said, um, tweaking it to the fine, you know, fine tuning it to what the patient's levels were before, that may be the challenge, but it's very easily managed. You just give thyroid hormone. So if a person's got an underactive thyroid, we replace the thyroid, the thyroid hormone. And we've got various preparations, predominantly T4, and it's, it's identical to T4, levothyroxine. You take it once a day and provided your levels are right and we just have to monitor the thyroid function tests, then, you know, you'll be good to go. Some people, about 15% of people, won't get full symptom resolution with T4 alone. They'll need additional T3 added to that. But that's really something for the endocrinologist to do um, rather than, than your GP because uh, because the symptoms are so nonspecific, one needs to be sure that one is actually helping the patient by giving them additional T3. So it's pretty straightforward to manage an underactive thyroid. Most times there's no surgery required or anything. We shouldn't be taking out thyroid glands for underactive thyroids at all. Um and provided that there's no nodule there that's suspicious, so then you would just replace the thyroid hormone. In an overactive thyroid, it depends largely on what the cause is. There are a number of different causes of overactive thyroids. We've not discussed them. The commonest one that we see is an autoimmune condition, Graves' disease or von Bastow's disease. Um, and there's various therapeutic regimens there, either medication or radioactive iodine and under extreme circumstances, surgery. But surgery really has fallen by the wayside for that condition. But there are other conditions. You can get a benign growth, a benign nodule that can secrete. So those respond very well to radioactive iodine. You can get a multinodular goiter, these enormous goiters, toxic multinodular goiter that secretes. They may need surgery. So it depends on the underlying cause. But thyroid disease is, is relatively speaking, easily manageable. And so um, one, of the, one of the listeners said that, you know, it's a scary discussion. It need not be because, fortunately, we've got good therapies. Yeah. No, it's all about the diagnosis. Mm. And because, as you were saying, you know, all the different symptoms, they can be so common. Yeah. You know, when you got through the first three uh, points of underactive thyroid, right? So weight gain, fatigue. <laughs> okay, so weight gain might have been because of suckers, but still. <laughs> weight gain, fatigue, cognitive fog, hair loss. You know, yeah. I'm thinking... What? I need to come and yeah. see you. Do you know? But the truth is, is that those are very, very common and it needs to be seen within the context of what is normal for each person. So what's normal hair loss for me might yeah. be very different hair loss for my studio engineer Craig, That's which it. is very different for you. Absolutely. And you know, if patients are concerned, then you do the test. And usually as a screening test, we only do the TSH. Yeah. So then you're looking at the 300 odd rand that it was there. T4, so the general recommendations are if you are concerned about thyroid disease, you screen with a TSH. If the TSH is abnormal, then you move on to T4 and T3. So try minimize costs that way because the TSH That's alone will point. give us a lot of information. Okay, so that TSH is, uh, is 337 rand. Okay, and yeah. Becky's, Becky even called them again. 
She's driving Lancet mad on behalf of High FM this morning. So she just phoned Lancet Labs in Auckland Park again. The T3 test is 299. Okay. So if your first test, your TSH is 337, so say 400 bucks, uh, plus another 300 for the T4 and another 300 for the T3. I mean, you're looking at About a thousand rand. rand. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's why again, you, they really shouldn't so be done. It's covered by medical aid, you know. Um, it usually comes out of savings. You know, if you've got a chronic condition approved, then you will be med- permitted to have a certain number of tests done a year. Yeah. Uh, but for the average person, it will probably come out of savings. Okay, and that's how Discovery became a bank. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we've spoken about thyroid cancer. We've uh, spoken about underactive, overactive. Um, what happens if a healthy person... And this is getting to the diet story, mm. right? A healthy person takes uh, some T4. Mm. Well, it's a T4 and T3, mm. right? In the form of, uh, can I mention a brand name? L- L-Troxin. L-Troxin. Right, okay. L-Troxin. Um, what happens? And the reason I ask is I said a friend of mine, she was on a, on some diet, and she had to take pills every single day, and she lost a fortune of weight. Uh, but then she got very, very ill, and it turns out that somebody she she didn't have a thyroid problem, uh, but one of the pills that she was given by this quack, let's call him what mm. he is, um, was altroxin. Yeah, so it's important to note that there are a number of. But doctors. she drove everybody crazy. She became very moody, yeah. and she became impossible yeah. while while she was uh, on it. Yeah, and in a, unfortunately, there are a number of doctors that will prescribe. Levothyroxine—that's the generic for the, the the brand names of the thyroid replacement um, for weight loss. And in the short term, one will lose weight, but the problem is their side effects. And you know what can happen is that your pituitary can decrease production of TSH. So your body will compensate. Right, but if the dose that you're taking is still above normal, super physiological, it doesn't matter. You can shut down your thyroid. You're still taking in too much thyroid hormone, so you will present with those symptoms of thyroid toxicosis. And again, the major concerns then, besides the moodiness, the agitation, the anxiety, all that stuff, is cardiac and bone health. Those are already the main the main problems that long term can cause uh, deleterious sequelae. So that's really what we would look out for. And you know, there are a lot of people that just they give thyroid hormone for weight loss. Someone's feeling a little bit fatigued or whatever it is to try help things along a bit. But it, it's you know, long term you're doing more harm than good. Yeah, mm. staying with uh, with hormones. How does the body get rid of hormones, or does it not? No, it does. The enzymes that break down the hormones, that degrade the hormones. And so some of them are filtered by the kidney, some of them are filtered by the, the liver, but they're hormones that exist, I mean, enzymes that exist. And would just be excreted? Yeah, they get converted into inactive metabolites, and then they get excreted, usually in the urine, sometimes sometimes through the liver and the biliary tree. So there's no such thing as our, our drinking water being full of hormones. Is that true? Gosh, well, it's <laughs> I didn't difficult. expect that sign. No, it's difficult because, you know, we know, for example, that with antibiotic use in animals, for example, we're getting resistant organs and we're getting exposed to it. And there is some, uh, there's a growing body of evidence looking at hormones in animals and the meat that we eat. It becomes difficult because hormones are generally peptides, which means that in theory our gut pepti- uh, peptidases, those enzymes that break down protein, should be accounting for a lot of this. Um, but that's not true of all the hormones that we see. And the evidence is that you can take thyroid hormone and you can take, you know, oral hormones that will get into the body, get absorbed and have an effect. So what I don't about, know about, what about HRT? 
Exactly. exactly. Uh, what's a hormone replacement therapy? Exactly. So those are all formulated in a way that they'll survive the the you know acidic environment and the, all the enzymes in the in the intestinal tract. So those do get absorbed. I don't know about drinking water. You know, we know that there's a growing problem with something called endocrine disruptors, and that really is a discussion all on its own. Environmental toxins. That's mixed drug together. <laughs> environmental toxins that have an impact on the endocrine system, and where this is most problematic is when you look at fertility. And you're seeing decreased fertility, and you're seeing um, just from childhood animals. It, it's a big problem, and even in rural areas, DDT is a big one of those that's used to spray for malaria mosquitoes, right? Anopheles mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. Could be, it could be so as well. So this is really, and in fact, many of the societies have come out with statements on endocrine disruptors, and this we're seeing environmental toxins, environmental contaminants that are having an impact on the, envi- on the endocrine system. Whether or not hormones in the drinking water is a true problem or not, I don't know. It's something that's being looked at as part of this because where the hormones coming from? Are we are we passing them all from the hormones we're taking? Is it from animals? I'm not convinced it's in the water per se, but but you know certainly it might survive. Who knows? Who knows? But certainly you know I need to test it for sure. Many people are concerned about uh, chicken and meat because they say that they pump full of hormones. It's possible. Um, you think- know. Chicken is the antibiotics, or one of them is the antibiotics. No, so some people yeah. are concerned because many of the chickens may be exposed to estrogens, and women that have got hormone-sensitive uh, cancers may then, you know, m- manifest with those oh, breast wow. cancer and things like that. So I don't want to cause mass panic here. It's something that needs to be looked into and discussed. Um, I can't say off the bat that, yes, it's in the water. No, it's not. But we know that there are environmental toxins, endocrine disruptors that are out there, and it's a problem. And, you know, it's something that's being looked at very seriously, certainly in the medical community. Look, sometimes we just got to use good old common sense. That's it. You know, I was speaking to a gentleman by the name of uh, Yoram Bugaj. Hmm. Yoram Bugaj has got a company called Genuine Foods. And yes. we were talking about cows. Genuine Foods does their, they do Chalav Israel uh, milk production. They make their own feta cheese, whatever. It's not Don't an ad. the yogurt. Okay. It's not an ad for Genuine Foods, which, are, which can be found at. <laughs> okay, never mm-hmm. mind. But, um, and he was actually saying to me that the average lifespan of a regular cow, your regular, either dairy, uh, your your dairy cow, right? Mm. So it's either um, Ayrshire or it's uh, what are the others, the Jersey mm. or whatever. They can live up to 16 years. When they go into milk production as part of the factory and the just the way that we produce our milk, their lifespan is reduced to two years, mm. which which... The reason I was having a conversation with him was about, you know, whether it's actually halachic <laughs> to eat meat and drink milk mm-hmm. if it's produced in such a fashion. Mm-hmm. Turns out he doesn't do it like that. Okay, there's there's no hormones, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Woolworths have also got uh, hormone-free yeah. milk. Um, but these are questions, and if we are partaking of food, drink, whatever it is, whether it's anything from soya to to milk to meat. Um, we should really be looking at what's going into the production of that because ultimately you are what you eat. Uh, that's very important. And I think the other thing is, you know, it's very easy to sow mass hysteria with these things. Um, what needs to be looked at is the scientific evidence that exists at the moment um, because we know, for example, endocrine disruptors are very real and there's a lot of research going on into them and we've got good evidence and a lot of it is locally produced as well. So that's the thing. When you start looking at soya, phytoestrogens, these kinds of things, there's a lot of hearsay out there. But when you when you actually try to get the, the evidence for it, it becomes a bit more difficult. And the reason I bring this up is because people still have to live. 
you still have to live your life and an enjoyable life and you still have to eat and you have to feed your kids. And so if you become so restrictive, then your life is not worth living. And so that's why we need to keep our common sense about us. We need to look into these things and see where there's good scientific data for it, yeah. where that exists. Then you, then you take it uh, into consideration. Dr. Movitz, I can see that Roz Basarabi, the culture vulture is already, she's, she's already here. But we, I've just got to ask him one more question. Okay, she said it's all right. Thanks, Rosie. All right, so one more question. Mm. This comes from Nikki. She says, why are so many doctors prescribing glucophage to younger people who aren't diabetic? I have no idea what that is, but if you can maybe answer Nikki's question. Standing on one foot. Glucophage is an anti-diabetic medication, but it's got uh, some side effects or I guess they're beneficial effects, can cause very, very mild weight loss, and it can help to ameliorate something called insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is a pre, it's one of the early precursor lesions to diabetes. It's also implicated in polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's an entirely different discussion, but um, doctors would be using it either to aid in weight loss or to ameliorate insulin resistance and try help with PCOS or prevent the onset of diabetes, for which there's only limited data. Tiff, you did that well. <laughs> My guest, Dr. Brad Mervitz. Uh, he's an endocrinologist. And uh, thank you so, so much. You Please, you have to come back. We have to talk thank about you. that endocrine disruptors because these are all environmental factors mm. that we can all look at, you know, weigh it up, limit that's exposure it. to. And that's really what it is. It's about ex- il- limiting exposure. Absolutely. You know, it's that whole moderation thing, which none of us really subscribe to. So uh, thank you very, very much for coming in. Thank you for look having me. Look forward to uh, to speaking to you again soon and thank you so much and a special thanks to Becky who actually called Lancet Laboratories and got all the prices for us and uh, thanks Becky jeez you're on your game this morning appreciate it and uh, thank you thank you for joining us for this Discam Medical Monday until next week God bless Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam Pharmacists Who Care